Good morning. Uh, kids, you are dismissed to Children's Church. You can go ahead and head that way. Um, I am pretty in awe of the grace of God this morning. I can say to you, uh, it is only by the grace of God that I stand here that I care anything about this, that I'm uh, inclined to preach the Word of God, that my heart is drawn to it. I can tell you that two and a half years ago I was in complete rebellion against God, and God saved me and drew me unto His Son and has done a great work and has been so faithful even when I have not. And so I first and foremost praise my God and my Savior, Jesus Christ, this morning for the work that He has accomplished alone. Praise God. As you know, we've been in our series on the attributes of God, and we are in week four of the series, and we are talking about the sovereignty of God this morning, and it is, it is a breathtaking doctrine. And so there's just a couple of things that I want to say first uh, before we start. Um, first being, yesterday I counted how many scripture references I have in this sermon, and I'm not going to tell you the number because you're going to think that we're going to be here all day if I do tell you that, but I can assure you that we're not. We're going to get through it. Um, but I'm saying that to say, don't try to turn to every text that I say, because if you do, you're going to be turning pages this whole time. So um, I'll say, you know, when we're going to stop and go through one, there's many that we will. Um, I'll say, you know, let's turn together, and I'll, I will say that. Um, secondly, many of the things that I'm going to say today are, they're overwhelming. I mean, it's the nature of the doctrine of God's sovereignty through and through. It's the nature of God's word. It does that to creatures like us. It overwhelms us, and that's okay. And I'm thankful that we've carved out time in MC to talk about this and ask questions, and that's good. And I encourage you to go and to read. Um, thirdly, I am the newbie at this, and I don't have an iPad. I have paper. And so uh, I've determined that I'm not to be, have continuity with what I'm doing. I'm going to not be able to turn pages up here. I'm going to have to probably just drop it on the floor. So do not be distracted when I'm just putting paper on the ground. Okay, there's seven pages. It's going to happen seven times. It's fine. So... Uh, with that, um, I'd like to begin by sharing a quote with you, actually, and what better way to start a sermon on sovereignty than a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Um, here it is. You got it, Christian. It says this, There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances and the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them. There is nothing for which the children ought more earnestly to contend than the doctrine of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God and his right to sit upon that throne. It is God upon the throne that we love to preach. It is God upon the throne whom we trust. And Psalm 135 verse 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. And that right there is what it means for God to be sovereign. It means that he is on his throne, he is doing as he pleases in his creation, accomplishing all of his own purposes for his glory. That is what it means for God to be truly sovereign. And this doctrine is hated by the world. Even if the world acknowledges God anymore, they, they will let him be anywhere but on his throne where he has every right to be. Um, but we as believers, we love this doctrine and we are drawn to it and we praise God for it. We believe that God is sovereign over all things, that God has a sovereign decree that he has set forth. What I'm about to read to you is a um, confession of faith, and I recognize this is not, this is not scripture, 
but it is a statement of doctrine derived from Scripture. It is a formal expression of Christian faith. It very clearly outlines what we believe, and that's why I bring it this morning. So here it is. This is the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. So the Old English. Um, and it says the very same thing in the Westminster Confession, if you, have, if you are aware of what that is. Um, this is chapter 3, article 1. It says this, that God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is Causes, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established, in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things, and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. So if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, I'd invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 46. If you don't have one, there are some um, along the aisles that you can grab. It's Isaiah chapter 46. starting in verse eight. This is the word of God. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Let's pray together. Lord God, I ask now that as we come into your word that you would help us. God, help us to see your sovereignty as you have revealed it to us in your holy inspired word. Help us to see, God, that you are on your throne and that you have every right to be there, O oh God. Help us to be drawn to this doctrine. Help us to worship you truly for it. Help us to see the beauty of who you are in it, God. I pray that you would help us to set aside objections that we as creatures might bring forth to this doctrine. Um, to truly put our hand over our mouth when we want to object to what your word says, God. Help us to do that. Help us to submit to your word this morning and what it says. In Christ's name I pray, amen. This is God's revelation to the prophet Isaiah and through him to his own people. And he starts by saying, recall it to mind, you transgressors, remember the former things of old. So remember all that God has done, all that he has accomplished, the covenant he's made, the promises that he's kept, defeating his own enemies, delivering them into the people of Israel, God's faithfulness to his people even when they were not faithful to him, all that he has accomplished. And he says that he is God, there is no other, there is none like him. He says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. So God declares the outcome of things before it happens. That's God doing that. And we see the reason for this in the second half of this verse, verse 10. It says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. So while God is declaring the end from the beginning, he's saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish my purpose. That's why I declare the outcome of things before it happens. That God has, he has set forth this creation with a plan and with a purpose. It's not purposeless. God has created with a purpose and he has committed to that purpose. He didn't do it for no reason. He didn't do it 
for fun. Uh, he didn't do it because we're so great and awesome, but because he is, and he's going to make that known. And that is the purpose of God. There's the first one. <laughs> that is the purpose of God, is his own glory. That is why God created, to manifest his glory. And this is what he is accomplishing, and he will not fail. Verse 11, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. God is in complete control of his own creation and absolutely will not fail to accomplish this purpose that he has set forth. He will not fail to glorify himself with the creation that he has brought forth. Ephesians 1 actually tells us that God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11 um, not some things, not just the good things, um, and, and none of the bad things. All things God is working together for, for his own glory. According to the counsel of his will, God is doing that. And he's doing that down to the very molecule. Everything is working together for the glory of God. As R.C. Sproul says, there is not one maverick molecule in this universe operating independently of God's sovereign plan and control and purpose. And so the picture that we get is not that God's trying really hard to accomplish his purpose and man's getting in the way of that all the time and God's having to adjust his plan based off of what his creation is doing. God has set forth his purpose from the beginning and will not fail and everything is working together towards that purpose. It is an absolute certainty and man cannot thwart that. In Daniel chapter four, this is the realization that Nebuchadnezzar comes to. If you remember, he did a lot, but he built this golden image and he, he commanded the people as a king to, to, to bow down to this, uh, this golden image. These three men wouldn't do it, remember? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they would not bow down to this golden image and so he tries to burn them in a furnace and God saves them. And so in Daniel chapter four, you see Nebuchadnezzar is restored and he has this great realization. It says this, verse 34 and 35. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So man can do absolutely nothing when it comes to the purpose of God and stopping that or standing in the way of that. God will be glorified. Just a few supporting points to go along with this. God is sovereign over time, that he created time and made it meaningful for us and we are operating in time together, but God is himself not bound by time. He created that and he upholds that. Second Peter 3.8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. This doesn't mean, it's not a conversion chart. It doesn't mean literally one day is a thousand years. What it's saying is that time is absolutely no constraint for a sovereign God. Psalm 90, verse two, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Some translations even say from eternity to eternity, you are God. And God is Outside of time, he is operating eternally, that we are in time changing and growing together, experiencing the future as it comes. Um, but God is not. He eternally is. And it may seem to us like it's taking God a long time to do what he's doing and everything's a mess and God's having to fix everything. But that's not a reality for a sovereign God. He knows exactly what's going on, every bit of it. And all of it is working together for the purpose of God. Last one, Exodus chapter 3. 
If you remember, God appears to Moses in a burning bush. He says, take off your sandals for this is holy ground. And he commands him to go to Pharaoh and to let his people go, people of Israel. And Moses is really scared. He doesn't, he doesn't know how he's going to communicate this. He's, he's a very bad communicator. Um, he asks God, who should I say that you are? And God says, I am who I am. That's a name for God. He's not the, the I was. He's not the I hope to be. He is the eternal, unchanging God who wields time in the palm of his hand. God is sovereign over nature. Jeremiah 31, 35, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. You know why it's so hot outside today? That didn't just, that didn't just happen. God brought that forth today. That's God doing that. I am absolutely not a naturalist. Isaiah 40, 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. The way stars are where they are in the sky, galaxies, planets, all of that, God brought that forth and placed each and every one of them. Millions of stars, billions of galaxies, God brought that forth and that's there for God. That screams the glory of God. I got this phone app the other day and apparently it's been around for a while, but it, if you point your camera at the sky, it shows you the constellations, like it connects the dots. Um, it was blowing my mind the other night and I'm glad it was dark outside because your neighbors would have thought I was crazy if I'm out there, you know, with my phone pointed at the sky, but there's constellations shaped like lions and bears and fish. That, that was blowing my mind and that's God who did that, who arranged these for his own glory. Psalm 147, 15 through 18, he sends out his command to the earth, his word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool, he scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. Job 37, 11 through 13, he loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. Whether for correction or for his land, or for love, he causes it to happen. You catch that? It's the purpose of God that God is doing these things. They're happening according to his purpose and by his command. Last one, Mark chapter four. It's actually in all the Synoptic Gospels, but just to give you a reference, Mark chapter four, verse 39. It's a popular story. Jesus and his disciples, they're on a boat together and there's a great storm going about and Jesus is asleep, right? And the disciples are very scared. Uh, they wake Jesus up and they're, help us, help us, you know? And, and Jesus, he stands up and he says two words to the storm. He says, be still. And in a moment, it stops. The waves stop, the storm stops, the rain stops, and it's still. Two words and his creation obeys him. You should be in awe of that. I am. When God sees something in his creation, he doesn't want to be happening. He says, stop, and it stops. Creation obeys God. God is sovereign over chance happenings. Proverbs 16, 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Sovereign over seemingly unimportant things. Matthew 10, 29 through 30, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. So even random things that seem very unimportant to us, those don't just happen. Pine cones falling off of trees. 
happens according to the sovereign plan and purpose of God. God is sovereign over the will of man even, the Bible teaches. Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 19, verse two, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Proverbs 20, 24, a man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? And lastly, Proverbs 21, 1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. You might say, well, well what about my free will? Or what about my free will, bro? You might say that to me. And I'm not saying that you don't have a will. Hear me on this. I'm absolutely saying that and affirm, the Bible affirms that you have a will. But here's what I am saying to you, that God is sovereign over even your willing, that God has set forth this creation with a purpose like we've seen. And you're not over here operating independent of God's sovereign plan and purpose. You're here with your will and with your decision making. And this should bring us great comfort to know that, shouldn't it? that it's ultimately God who's directing my life and shaping my life and not up to me. If it, well, I'll just say this, if it, were, if it were up to me, I would wreck my life, absolutely. And I tried and God stopped me. Praise God that he would be sovereign over even our willing. And you might say even that you chose to come here this morning, but I say to you that God brought you here this morning, ultimately. That is no accident. That happened and God ordained that, that you would be here this morning. We believe that God is sovereign over salvation. And here's what I mean when I say that. I mean that God is the one who saves people. The one who regenerates us and raises us from death to spiritual life. The author and perfecter of our faith, truly the one who justifies and sanctifies us. He is our righteousness, our atonement for sins, our forgiveness, our mediator, our intercessor, our great high priest, our hope and steadfast anchor of the soul. He is the one who accomplishes our salvation completely and totally and praise God for it. Would you turn with me now to Romans chapter eight? Paul's letter to the Romans is easily his most comprehensive and extensive work. A lot of theologians refer to it as his magnum opus, his most influential work. Uh, it is very clearly the gospel, very, very clearly laid out in 16 chapters. And it doesn't start off with great news about you and me, about how we've obeyed God, how we've done what he's asked us to do, how we've gone after him and turned towards him and obeyed him but it actually starts off with really, really bad news about us and our sinful condition and what that leads us into by nature. In the first three chapters, Paul is relentlessly indicting man under sin. Three chapters of this whole book, he spends talking about sin. And he starts off in chapter one saying that we exchange the truth of God for a lie, that we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator by nature. So when we come into this world by nature, we turn away from God and we turn to things of this world and we make them ultimate, we worship them and let them take the place of God when they shouldn't. And I don't even think that you need me to really explain what that looks like today. I think you very clearly see this in the world. You see the world glorifying worldly created things like sex and money and power and all of those things. 
This is what sin leads, leads man into. And Paul kind of reaches the height of what he's saying with this in chapter three. And he says, he says this, he comes to this conclusion that all, both Jew and Gentile, are under sin as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. That's what the Bible says about our natural condition. It says together they have become worthless, all have turned aside. He kind of concludes there by saying there is no fear of God before their eyes. And that is you and that is me when we come in this world. We were all once there. Every one of us. This is our sin condition and what it leads us into. And if, if, if God did not act, we would remain there. If God did not act and, and, and work this great work of salvation, then we would remain in rebellion against our creator, God. But praise God that Romans, it doesn't end with chapter 3. No, it does not. And we are here in Romans 8, and this is the work of God in Christ Jesus. This is verse 29 I'm starting in says this, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. These five words that are seen here, foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. They've been referred to by theologians in the church for hundreds of years as the golden chain of redemption. That's what this is called. And the reason that it's called that is because they are tethered together. Where there is one, all of them are there. You don't have one without all of them. And it is an unbreakable chain. And so this first word, foreknew, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Let me tell you what this doesn't mean. This is not God having passive knowledge of what's going to happen, of what is the actions that are going to take place. That's not what this means. This is God, not God knowing something in the sense that I know I'm going to go eat lunch today or I'm going to go outside. It's different. This is, it was written in a different language and we need to take time and look at that. We can't apply our English understanding of the word new. It's an active verb that God is doing. The Greek word is Proegno, it's an active verb. Um, and every time you see this word, it is God knowing people, not actions. Um, it corresponds to the Hebrew word hida. And uh, we need to look at a few examples of this word to really see what, what this word foreknew means in order to understand that. So just to give you a few examples, there's many more, but these are just a few. Amos chapter three, verse two. You only have I, yada known of all the families of the earth. He's talking to his people, Israel. So it's not saying, I only knew about you and didn't know about the other families. It means something else. Is you only have I chosen. You only have I been moved towards. You are my people, right? Genesis chapter 4, another example, Adam, Hida, Eve, translated to Adam, knew Eve. And what happened? She conceived and bore a child, right? So this is Adam's loving movement towards his wife, in this case, having sex. This is, so what does this word mean when it says he foreknew? This is God's active choosing. This is his choosing to enter into loving relationship with a people, and it says that he foreknew. So before the foundations of the world, before God created anything, he knew a people for himself in Jesus Christ. He was moved towards them, and it's, it's not based off of anything in the creature. It's according to the good pleasure of God's will. It's not arbitrary either. 
It's according to God's good purpose. And so if you are here today, if you are trusting Christ, it means that God first loved you before the foundations of the world and not the other way around. That's the truth. That's what Paul the apostle is communicating here. And you should, that should marvel us. That should absolutely wreck us because God knew about our sin. He knew about our rebellion. He knew about our wretchedness and all the things that we would do. And yet he knew you. He was moved towards you. He was committed to saving you and you being his person and he being your God. It says those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So God predetermined that Christ would be the head of these people and that his purpose in foreknowing a people is to conform these people to the image of Jesus Christ. So God's purpose in foreknowing a people is to make them look like Jesus, to glorify himself by conforming them to the image of his own beloved son. Christ is the preeminent one over all things, including the church. This was predetermined by God in eternity past. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Now this calling is, it's not calling in the sense that I call to someone or even I call someone to a friend of mine like repentance and faith come to Christ. It's different. This is God's calling. It's a divine calling that God is doing. It's, it's different what Paul's communicating here. It's the kind of call that Jesus made when he commanded a dead Lazarus to come out of the tomb. He said, come out. And Lazarus, who was dead, came to life, and he came out of that tomb. It's the kind of call that that Paul writes about in Ephesians 2 when it says, and you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were physically alive, you were emotionally alive, but you were spiritually dead, following the course of this world, the prince, the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And you were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And then those words we love, right? But God. But God being rich in mercy with the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and made us alive together with Christ. For it is by grace you've been saved. He goes on to say that this faith is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which he prepared before him. That we are the workmanship of God truly, that this faith is a gift to his people freely. Those whom he called, he also justified. And Paul's really spent time outlining this, this doctrine and what it means. And very briefly, it is what it means to ju- for God to justify someone. It means that it's a legal declaration of God. It's a forensic term. It means that God declares you right in his presence. It says that, and, and Paul writes this, that we're justified by faith alone. And what the Confessions of Faith very clearly outline, and I, I think this is a great way of wording it, that faith is the instrument of our justification. So it's not, it's not the measure of my faith that, that saves me, but it is the object of my faith that saves me. It's the faith that unites me with Jesus Christ. It is his righteousness applied to me, imputed to my account, credited to my account, that I can stand right in the presence of God and he can put down his gavel and say, just, righteous in my sight. And our sin, the wrath that it demands, was put on Jesus Christ. And he atoned for our sin in full, past, present, and future, so that we could stand just in the sight of God. It says that in those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so what that very clearly means is that those whom God saves, those whom God has done all this work to accomplish, he keeps them. 
that they are the workmanship of God, that he seals them with the promised spirit, as Ephesians 1 says, that God doesn't fail in his purpose of salvation, and man can't stop that. As Jesus said in John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one coming to me I will never cast out. Or Hebrews chapter 7, this is one of my favorite verses, is consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What more can be said? What a beautiful picture of Christ and what he is doing, the work of God and salvation that he has accomplished. And look at what Paul says right after this. Even he's overwhelmed by such a reality of the work of God, that he would save a wretched, rebellious, sinful people. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, God's chosen? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Paul asks, who can bring any sort of charge of condemnation against those? If God, who is the just judge of the universe, is the very same one who has said justified, if Christ Jesus has risen, he's died on the cross for their sins, take, bore his sins in his body on a tree, if he has risen from the grave, if he's ascended to heaven, if he's taken his seat upon the throne of glory, he's making intercession for his people, displaying the perfect life, death, and resurrection that he has done for the people of God, what could bring any charge of condemnation against such people? And the answer, it's rhetorical because the answer is absolutely nothing could bring any sort of condemnation against those people. If truly this has happened, it's an incredible picture. And what comfort this should bring to the person who doubts today, who's trusting in Christ but feels unworthy, to know that it truly is God who has accomplished all this in my place. That will do everything to change the way you view, you go about it. You're, you're feeling unworthiness, and when Satan brings those lies into your head, it truly causes you to just turn away and, and behold God and what he has accomplished. And it's because God has done these things that we can truly hold to the promises that he's made in his word, right? We could say with Paul that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? We could say with the writer of Hebrews chapter 4 that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence and with boldness as sinful people because God has accomplished all this. Behold the Lord your God today, church, and see the great work of salvation that he has accomplished that began before the foundations of the world to redeem wretched sinners like us. What a, what a sovereign God we serve, a merciful, glorious God. God is sovereign over evil and suffering. God is completely sovereign over every single evil action and event that happens in human history. They have purpose in God's eternal plan. Even some of the worst things that we see today have purpose in God's plan. And I want to help you see this through a few biblical examples. Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 4? Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, 
whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So the worst act in human history, the sinless Son of God being murdered brutally upon a tree, was planned and predestined by God, this text says. And that is worse than any example that you can give me. That is truly the most horrific, evil thing that has ever happened in creation. That is worse than the Holocaust, than slavery, than racial injustice, than murder, any of these things. So why would God plan and predestine such an evil action? Because of the purpose that he had in it. Because there was good purpose that God had in the evil actions of his creation, right? And what is that good purpose? Jesus dying on a cross. It is redeeming his people fully and completely from their sins. That is the good purpose that God had in doing such a thing, in declaring that that would happen and that that would take place before the foundations of the world. And did God force these men to do it? No. They, they willfully did this. They chose to do this. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to put him to death. And are they responsible for that evil action, that evil intention of their heart? Absolutely they are. But did God ordain that to occur and have good purpose in that? Absolutely God did. And you have to be willing to accept some mystery here because I understand that sounds very contradictory. Um, sounds very paradoxical, like those two things can't just exist at the same time, but they do, and that's how God has revealed them to, in his word, and we are to accept that. And that, I think it's, it's, a, it's, it's sort of a worthless attempt to try and completely reconcile that. We can try, and philosophers have done a great job with this over the years, but ultimately, the Bible doesn't see a need to reconcile this sort of thing, how human will and how God can be totally and completely sovereign over that and yet hold creatures responsible. But that is the picture, the biblical picture that we get of God. And let me tell you why this is good news that God would do this. Because if God didn't ordain evil and suffering, then if he didn't have purpose in it, that that would be purposeless evil. Things like 9-11, things like racial injustice, school shootings, things like this, that would be purposeless evil that's happening. God just let that happen, no purpose in it, just allowed that to happen. That's bad news, that's really sad. And praise God that he would have good purposes even in the evil actions of his creation. He uses sin sinlessly for his own glory and for the good of his own people. Another example for you really briefly, Genesis chapter 50, if you remember, uh, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers because his father loved him. They were very jealous of his brother. And he ends up interpreting Pharaoh's dreams and rising to power. And he ends up confronting his brothers and they're with him. And the very end of the book of Genesis, it's, it's, it said this, they, they come to him after their father dies and they're very scared that he's gonna take action against them now that their father's dead, that he's truly gonna have vengeance on them for what they did to him so long ago. And this is what he says to him. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So again, what his brothers did was evil and sinful and wrong, but God only meant good in it. God had very good purpose in the evil intentions of his creation. And in fact, even earlier on in Genesis 45, 8, when Joseph, he makes his identity known to his brothers for the very first time, 
He says to them, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. To preserve a remnant, to preserve life. God only had good purpose in the evil actions of his creation. And that should change everything about the way that we as Christians, as believers in the sovereignty of God, should view the things that we see happening, the evil, horrific things that we have going on in this world. That we could view that as God has good purpose in something like that. And I know I can't see it. I'm not able to see all those things because I'm a creature and I'm created and I can't know everything. But if I could, I would see that. Things like even like 9-11, the way people drew together and came to God and trusted him in the midst of such a crisis. God has very good purposes in such evil, horrific events. It says in Romans chapter 8, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Those who are called according to his purpose. So I can't, I can't help but think in a room this size of people that there are people hurting in this room. There is suffering going on that you may be battling anxiety or depression or be in financial distress or the future may be very uncertain and unknown to you. You may be very anxious and worried about that. Whatever it may be. And I can't tell you exactly what the purpose of God is in that, but I can tell you with absolute 110% certainty based upon the word of God that it has purpose, that it is for your good even, as Romans 8, 28 says, as a child of God, that everything that comes into your life, even the worst things, for your own good and for the glory of God. The Bible teaches that we can welcome suffering. We rejoice in our sufferings, as the apostle writes. What, a, what an incredible picture. that These men, they were suffering in incredible ways for being men who were entrusted with the gospel, bringing it forth, preaching it. People wanted to kill them all the time. They were beaten. They were thrown in prison. Many of them died horrific, brutal deaths. Brutal deaths, blah, yikes. Uh, Paul was beheaded. I mean, Stephen was stoned to death. Peter was crucified upside down. So he's, he's saying all this in the context of suffering, even the things that I said about salvation. All of that is said in the context of suffering, which I think is very interesting. The reason why we can trust the promise of God that all things work together for our good is because we're his, we're his children. And if he's done all of this, if he has united us with Christ, if our lives are truly hidden with Christ in God, as Colossians 3 says, for anything to come into our lives, it has to first be strained through the sovereign hand of God. You can know that. You can know that your present suffering is not purposeless. It has purpose. It is for your good and ultimately for the glory of God. As Spurgeon wrote that I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me into the rock of ages. What is that? What an incredible attitude to have towards evil and towards suffering, to trials. That, that suffering is for my good because it, it leads me to God. It leads me to utter dependency on God. It takes my eyes off the things of this world and on God where they belong, right? I mean, I, even some of the things that have happened to me this past year, I mean, if you told me they were gonna happen a year ago, I would have said, absolutely not. Don't want that. Don't let that happen. But now I couldn't see it any other way because it has caused me to draw near to my God like never before, to trust him, to be utterly dependent upon him, for him to be the supreme love of my heart and to grow in that and to trust God in the midst of anything, to know that this world is passing and fleeting and the things of this world are nothing. 
Paul writes in Romans 8 even that the, the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That there is coming a day when all of these things are passing away, truly. That our citizenship is in heaven. There's where our hope is set upon. And so maybe we need to suffer in order that we could be prepared for such a glorious eternity with God. And what if we had this sort of perspective on suffering and on evil? And it is my hope and prayer that, that you would see the sovereignty of God and be drawn to him like, like never before, that you are overwhelmed by his magnificence and in all of God upon the throne as he is revealed in his word. And praise God that he is sovereign and that he is on his throne. We're now together. We're going to come together in communion. Um, this is a very special time for us as believers. We ask that if you are not yet trusting in Christ that you don't come to the table. Um, this is the time for us as believers to do that. We ask that you just sit and pray. Um, let us now reflect on the sovereign character of our God and what Jesus Christ has truly accomplished in our behalf and what God set out to do before the foundations of the world through him. Let's pray together. Lord God, we come before you um, in complete awe of who you are, of the things that you have done, Lord, of your sovereign character and how you have revealed that to us clearly in your word. I pray now for the hearts of everyone in this room, God, I pray that they would be drawn to your sovereign character, that they would see it and be moved towards you, God, that they would see that, that you first loved them, that you have acted in their heart, that you have been moved towards them. Help us to respond to that, God, today. Help our hearts to be for you. Help us to worship you truly. Praise you, God, that you are sovereign. In Christ's name I pray these things, amen.